Well, uh, we're on the heels of spring break. Is this is the Sunday at the end of spring break? Is that still considered part of spring break, or is it like over? It, you're still on it, okay? You're still breathing the fumes of spring break, and uh, it's uh, it was great to have some of you still here with us. Those of you work in town, live in town, or just decided to stay in town. And it's also good to see a number of you back already as well, and uh, you're going to be welcoming in the rest of our friends and church members and uh, fellow students uh, throughout the rest of the day, maybe even tomorrow or later in the week. Who knows if someone's bold enough to take that much time off. But uh, it is good to see you back, and it, I am so glad it's, it's Sunday. Uh, the, uh, as far as some announcements for uh, things... Um, Coming up, the only thing I really have is the upcoming TCS fun run, the Timberlake Christian School fun run and carnival, and, we, and needing some uh, volunteers. If you're a church member here or on the church mailing list, which if you're a member, you'll be on the list, uh, there's not many opportunities to serve. And this is on, help me, Christy, is it April 2nd and 3rd, something? I think, uh, I think Saturday is the 3rd. Saturday is the 2nd, thank you. So April Fool's Day is preparation, all right, and that's, I'm not joking. Uh, and the 2nd is the Saturday, thank you. And yeah, there's opportunities to help on that day before and the day of in many different ways. We're going to send around a clipboard this upcoming Friday, or you can respond to that email if you're on that email list. And that would be a great help to our ministry and to our school in uh, just showing how you can be of help. Okay, well, I have the privilege of teaching this morning. Uh, you're going to get Clay in the morning service. If you didn't have him in the earlier one, you'll have him a little bit later. And uh, I have the privilege of teaching here Sunday, uh, on the, our boundless time. So let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of gathering, for the blessing to open your word. How we pray, Father, you show us great and marvelous things. Open our eyes that we may know them. Uh, make they, may may your, nurse, your, your mercies be new this morning to us, Lord, as, as we um, cling to your promises, that we, Lord, we, as we search to know them, and, Lord, in our desire to apply them and to be blessed in doing them. So, Father, uh, help us, and uh, we thank you for the privilege of opening it up today, your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, today... We're starting a new uh, series of lessons, it'll be four lessons, on godly decision-making. Godly decision-making. And, um, you know, when uh, Clay had asked me to do a few lessons, because he's doing Sunday evenings uh, with the equipping class on discipleship, um, I had let him know that this was the, you know, several months ago, this was the, the, the series I was thinking of, and Clay was just like so excited. You know, coming off the heels and at that time right in the middle of the dating series, uh, there's lots of decisions and things going through your minds, right? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I delay? How do I do it? And Clay's like, oh, this is like, this is like kind of coming in where, man, may God just give us a good word, and he does in the area of decision-making. And when you think about godly decision-making, really a series like this, there's several other things that could have called it, Right? Biblical decision-making would be another way we could call it, or how to make God-honoring decisions, or, or just how to know and do God's will, right? And um, if we were to just kind of simplify things for the kind of the no-brainer statement of the day, decisions are a necessary part of life, right? Would you say that's true? Since you are we taught, right? We, uh, Christy and I FaceTime with our grandchildren frequently, and one of their big decisions uh, when we're FaceTiming with them, you know, some of our grandchildren in Ohio, some are in Missouri, they're looking on that little screen. Um, after they say, hi, Grandpa, and hi, Amma, uh, there's usually a fight over who gets to pre press the red button, you know, hang up the phone, right? And we just started our conversation. But that's the big decision uh, when there's several grandchildren, who gets to hit the red button? And then uh, Chrissy and I try to talk them into a little more conversation before uh, who gets there, uh, the mom and dad lets them, you know, who, who gets to press the red button and hang up the phone. Uh, you know, when we're little children, there's, there's simple decisions we make. Do I get the red ball or the green ball? 
Or am I going to uh, color with the big fat yellow crayon or the orange one? Um, and to those at that point in our life, those are big decisions, right? But they're, as we look back, those are kind of simplified decisions. As we grow up and we mature, decisions get a little more complicated and they become a little more frequent. And now you're in the college days and it just seems like, oh, wow, decisions are on, they're on steroids, right? <laughs> Everywhere I look, I have a decision to make. Decisions, decisions, and decisions. Decisions are a necessary part of life. And as we're in this introduction here, let's realize, I think we all do, that not all decisions are created equally, are they? There's different kinds of decisions. And if we could just kind of break it down, maybe categorize them this way, there's moral decisions we need to frequently make, isn't there? The Word of God speaks to a moral will, an expectation for us to fulfill. We don't always obey it. Oftentimes we disobey. When we obey, we're blessed. When we disobey, we're not. We, we reap the, the, the consequences of that. But there's moral decisions that are clearly articulated as right or wrong in Scripture. There's mundane decisions, probably the majority of our decisions through a, a, a normal day, right? You've made a number of those already. They're, they're, they're somewhat might seemingly inconsequential, and yet they're decisions we have to make. Oh, am I going to go to Moe's or Chipotle this afternoon, right? I would recommend the latter uh, between the two. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're mundane kind of things we have to decide on to function. Am I going to have a cup of coffee or not? Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, am I, am I going to stick with uh, uh, caffeine or, or not caffeine today? Uh, am I going to study later today or not? Maybe that's not mundane. Maybe that's a little more important, uh, what you decide to do there. Um, but, yeah, probably 90-some percent of our decisions are just things we have to do from day to day, just take it one step in front of the other to get through the day. But probably where most of our attention goes, other than moral decisions and the frequent mundane, is momentous decisions, the biggies, right? I mean, the things we really have to decide on or we want to decide on in just carrying out our life. Certainly the biggest one, it's, in, it's related to a moral decision, is when we trust Christ, right? Significant decision, momentous decision that has huge effects for this life and obviously for eternity, but then there's those other questions. Whom will I marry? Or what college major will I go with? Or should I change my college major? Or should I change my college major again? You know that question, right? Uh, my career choice. Uh, when do I purchase a home? What church should I join? Momentous decisions. Significant life decisions that are, that are far-reaching and can be long-lasting. And, uh, you know, God speaks clearly to principles in the Word of God to give us guidance and direction here. And we'll be looking at each one of these areas of decisions, and especially the momentous ones throughout out the series. So when we look at, again, in our introduction of godly decision-making, the second point here is decision-making breeds lots of questions. How do I make good decisions, Right? They breed lots of questions. They're like rabbits, man. They just keep, every time there's one decision made, it seems like there's three more questions to answer, right? And there's just questions, 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 and decisions and choices that need to be made. And how do we do them well? How do we make godly decisions? Several questions to think about, and these are probably ones in your mind. Does God have a plan for my life? Is there a blueprint? Is there a map? Is there something God has scheduled for me and for life and this world I live in? And where we'll be, where we'll be camping out a lot today and, and, re, and referencing in the, in the coming weeks is God's sovereignty. That God absolutely does have a plan. He does have a blueprint. It wasn't handed to him. He has developed it for his good and holy purposes for the world he's created and for each of us that live in it, okay? We'll be getting to more of that. So God, does God have a plan for my life? Well, yes, he does. Well, if he does have a plan, is it possible to understand it? Isn't that a question you've asked before? Man, if God, if you're sovereign and you know a plan, how do I know that plan? 
is it possible to understand what it is? And the Bible does define how we respond to God who has sovereign plans for me. We'll be looking at God's revealed will, his moral will, you could say, his will of desire, which is clearly articulated in Scripture. And then we'll also look at whether or not really God, does God, is God obligated to show me his detailed plan for my life? And we'll find out he is not obligated to. We'll talk a little bit about that today. Number three, does God intend to guide me in my decisions? Am I on my own? Does God give me any help? What we'll find out here and what we'll be reminded of is God absolutely does care about our decisions. In fact, he commands that we make good and godly and conscientious decisions. Um, God's provided everything we need for life and godliness, and this includes our decisions. And um, when we think about approaches, how to do that, there are many unbiblical approaches as to how to make good and godly and biblical decisions for God. And we want to look at those unbiblical approaches and really look at them scripturally. We'll touch on a few of those today, and then we'll be hitting them more in the coming weeks. Um, and then really how to do it biblically, how to do it in a God-honoring way. We think of another question about decision-making, breeding lots of questions. How can I be a proactive participant in God's will and his plan for me and for his glory? Okay, so we'll be looking at um, how to participate in that well and how to make decisions with confidence. And the fifth question might be, how do I make God honoring decisions in areas the Bible does not specifically address? Okay, I see God has a moral will. I see there's commands in Scripture. I know he has general principles for me to follow. But what about those things that aren't defined in Scripture? Who should I marry? What color car should I drive? Uh, Should I change my major, right? Those aren't specifically addressed in Scripture, and yet God gives us clear and abundant and sufficient revelation to make good and confident decisions in those areas. So a few questions that we hope can answer from the scriptures in the coming weeks, all right? So still on our introduction, let's look at some of these popular but unbiblical approaches to decision-making. If you would take a poll uh, on the dorm hall and ask, how, do you, how, how should I make this big decision? You might get 10 different answers from 10 different people about a biblical approach or a God-honoring approach or a Christian approach to answer, uh, and, 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 and to answer various choices or decisions that we must make. And I'm going to break it down to three, um, three unbiblical approaches here. We're only going to hit on them briefly And again, we'll be hitting on them more, but just as an introduction here, one unbiblical method of making decisions is this quest to find God's personal plan for me. This is, uh, uh, I think, I often see in my life, or I've seen it in the lives of others, a very sincere way of trying to find out what God wants me to do but a misguided notion that God leads us in our decision-making by providing us tailor-made directions, especially when we're talking about these non-moral decisions, okay? Moral decisions clearly articulated in Scripture. No argument. That's God's plan. That's God's will. But when we're trying to make decisions, who should I marry? What color car should I drive? Do I go to Moe's or Chipotle? (laughs) What does this do, this, this quest to find God's personal plan for me? This is, this is uh, searching for personal revelation from God, all right? It's looking for God to disclose an individual will to me by, by really uh, showing heavenly, heavenly road signs, okay, that are your markers for every step I should take so that I never fall out of the path of following God's will. Because if I fall out of his path, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be everything God wants me to be. And we are on pins and needles, and we're walking on eggshells. What is God's plan for me? How should I decide? Lord, lead me so I don't make a bad or wrong decision and have to settle for second best. 
And therefore, we start looking for this trail of divine breadcrumbs, right, in order to find God's specific individual will for me. And what we want to look at here is this is much more mystical than it is biblical, all right? Discerning signs, interpreting circumstances as a means of, a means of special revelation to make sure I get that right. Now, we're going to be camping out here more in a coming lesson here. But, you know, first of all, I just want to give you some thoughts here of why this is unbiblical, all right? In Matthew chapter 12, and you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 12, verse 38, the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus a question. And it went like this, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, Jesus already had been performing many miracles, and they, you know, they were obviously not interested in finding out more about Christ, but they just wanted a, a, a new sign. Something, something magnanimous, something special, something that would just, you know, wow them in some astounding way. And Jesus didn't give it to them. In fact, he gives them a pretty direct answer in Matthew 12, 39. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, he, he's, he's, uh, he's rebuking their unbelief. And he says there in, in the rest of verse 39, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, this was a sign already given. You know, Jonah, he go, you know, goes on to say, was spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and so will the Son of Man. You know, here was the Son of God, the ultimate revelation of God, right before the scribes and Pharisees, and they still wanted a sign, okay? <laughs> Give us more. And Jesus says, here I am, right here. And, and, and he points back to existing revelation, doesn't he? I've already spoken. It's sufficient. It's enough. Act on what you've already been given. Don't ask for more. This is what we'll see as we go through the series. There's a way of wisdom in the all-sufficient word of God and the um, all-glorious God of love and kindness who works out all things for his good and his providence and his sovereignty. He's given us everything to make proper decisions. We don't need more signs. There's a similar scenario in Luke 16 with a rich man and Lazarus, right? Remember, the rich man dies and goes to Hades, and he's in torment, and Lazarus goes to paradise. And the rich man in torment, he requests for Lazarus to go tell his brothers, right? Warn them so they don't have to suffer like I am suffering in Luke 16, 27. What was the answer that was given to the rich man? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What do they have? They have God's revelation. It's sufficient. It's sufficient to answer the question. They must act on the revelation that God's already provided. And the rich man says, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Give them a sign to help them decide. It will make the difference. And the answer If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you guys know it well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so knowing God's will is not about acquiring a secret knowledge or by following divine signs. And we'll be going to the Word of God to see how to make good and godly decisions as we go through the series here, all right? Another uh, popular but unbiblical approach to decision-making is over-spiritualizing my decisions, over-spiritualizing them. You know, something I really appreciate about our group is you guys, you know, you wouldn't still be here if if you weren't content with just what God's Word has to say, right? I mean, this is what you get here. What we are telling you is just, just the raw truth of, of the Word of God. And when you receive that, you know, Clay and I and our leaders, we're so encouraged by your guys' desire and your, your growth and just learning how to apply truth and, and to go after things in such a way to, to honor God in all you do. But there can be some, there's, there's a point, there's a line we start crossing in the area of decision-making where we just, we go too far. You know, we go to the Word, we get counsel, uh, we pray all the proper things to make a decision, and we go around that wheel incessantly sometimes, 
when we have all the information we need to make a good and godly decision and we just won't pull the trigger. We got it all. You've done the homework. You, you've done everything. You've, you've received counsel. You, you, you got a clear word from the Lord. You, you, you found out what's, what's biblical and unbiblical. You have a path to go, and now there's this fear. There's this lack of trust to just say, yes, Lord, I will. And be confident in, this, in that decision, trusting God for the results that you're not in control of. And ultimately, it's that lack of control. I've got everything I need, but I won't make a decision. It's a spiritual indecisiveness. And we think we're spiritual as we continue to go around that wheel of collecting more and more information when you've got it all. <laughs> now make a decision. We'll be getting into that. How to be confident in decisions when I've got the information that I need. Proverbs 16.20 might be one reference she just put down here. I just love this one. He who gives attention to the word will find good. What a great promise, right? He who gives attention to the word will find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. That's not just trusting in the promise, but that's acting on the promise, right? Acting on revealed truth, making decisions, making the choices, and trusting God with the results, right? Next week, we're really going to spend a lot of time on why we can trust God with such confidence in our decisions, all right? And the third one here, popular but unbiblical approaches to decision-making is a results-oriented approach, the other side of the spectrum, where, you know, God is just basically out of the equation. And um, a results-oriented approach is really a more pragmatic way of making decisions. I have my goals. I've, I've, I've made my plans. Uh, I've, I've got all the information together, all of which are good things. But if that's exclusively the way you make decisions, then... They're not biblical decisions. They're not godly decisions. They're just pragmatic ones. It's all about just getting results. And James speaks to that in James chapter 4, that we're not to live just for plans, just for results, just for success. There's something more important. He says here in James 4, 13 through 16, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Well, it's a pretty humbling statement, right? Plans without God in the picture? Goals without God in the picture, planning for success without God in the picture, is evil, boasting, and arrogant. Wow. That, that, that is like in your face, isn't it? Uh, there, there's, there's a proper way here. What is it? You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. that. There's, a, there's, a, there's a submission under the sovereign will of God and in the direction of his moral will to make good and confident decisions that give him glory. So what is the right approach to godly decision-making? And uh, where we're going to start today <clears throat> is a few statements as we uh, conclude the introduction here. Is godly decisions start where God's expectations for his people begins, okay? Um, decisions aren't to be just made for the sake of making decisions. For the Christian, decision-making is just, it's a manner of living. It's how we live for God. This is like the substance of the Christian life, is making decisions to honor him, right, and glorify him. And, 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 and God allowing us to go through the difficult and and hard process of making difficult decisions with his help and learning to lean on him and trust him. You might be tempted to say, Rich, just give me, you know, three points for making the perfect decision, and I'll be satisfied. <laughs> and God doesn't give us that. That's not where we're to go. 
He's trying to do something bigger in you, something more special, something more profound, okay? And this is what it is. God wants faithful followers that make God-honored decisions. God wants faithful followers that make God-honoring decisions. It's the overarching umbrella, foundation, if you will, of the decision-making process. Why am I trying to make good decisions? What am I going after? What am I trying to do? And it's to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Okay? You could also say it another way if you want to. God wants God-honoring decision-makers that demonstrate their faithfulness to God. Okay? That's what it's all about. Glorifying God, worshiping him, following him, following his, his will as revealed in his word, and making good and godly decisions that demonstrate a faithful following of our Lord and Savior. All right? So, how do we get into this area? Let's get into the lesson here now. And we're, time's just kind of moving along, so we're going to keep racing here, right? God's sovereignty and my responsibility. Nice, light topic to cover in the next 20 minutes. Uh, we're going to do the best we can to kind of give you the fire hose of information here, much of which you've heard before, but we're going to look at it in the context of decision-making. God's sovereignty and my responsibility. So first we're going to look at God's sovereignty and his decreed will. If we're going to be a faithful follower of the Lord in our decision-making, I need to know the Lord that I'm following, right? And one of the key elements of decision-making in our knowledge of God and his character that we must know is his sovereignty. Listen to this, state, listen, listen to this statement. Knowing God's will about me must start with me knowing God about him. All right? Knowing God's will about me, the decisions we have to make, the difficulties, straining over what we should do and what we shouldn't, and the choices that are before us, just life that is racing in front of us, rather than just jump to those decisions. We have to start with knowing God. It's about him first, okay? And that's where we're going to start with this sovereignty. And let me give you a quick riches definition of sovereignty, okay? Uh, I've pieced together from a number of materials of people that are much smarter than, than I am. And there's much longer definitions than this, okay? So go to a systematic theology book, head over to Clay's office, borrow a book, just tell him first. And, um, and you'll see much more detailed, but let's settle for this. God's sovereignty. God does whatever he pleases while ensuring that his purposes and plans are fully accomplished in all circumstances and all people in a manner that is always consistent with his holy character. God does whatever he pleases. Now, we're going to look at a number of verses here. We're going to go through relatively quickly. But God's sovereignty, he does whatever he pleases. And then he ensures that his purposes and plans are fully accomplished all in all circumstances, all people, our decisions, using our decisions to accomplish his purposes. When we see this ensuring that his purposes and plans are fully accomplished, we're speaking about his providence. God's sovereignty, in other words, being fulfilled in the way he interacts with creation and us to fulfill that sovereign plan that he's already ordained. Okay? So God's sovereignty. And let's take a look at a few things about his sovereignty. Okay? I'm going to go here quicker than probably you're comfortable with, but uh, I'll be available afterwards if you want to ask some questions, right? So God's sovereignty and his decreed will. Let's look at several points. In God's sovereignty, he always accomplishes his plans and purposes. He always accomplishes his plans and purposes. Listen to Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, listen to this, my counsel shall stand, and I will 
accomplish all my purpose. The God of the universe is a planning God. Before time began to eternity future, God has a blueprint. It defines him as God, right? And his sovereign plan will always succeed. His power ensures it, and it will succeed to every detailed minutia. And we talk about God's sovereign plan here, we could also call it God's decreed will, what he wills to occur. And in his sovereignty and in his power, he will ensure it occurs. It's his divine and unchangeable plan. It's unalterable, it's unchangeable, and it's unknowable. It's unknowable to us until it unfolds, until we see it through the rearview mirror. And this sovereign nature of God, it makes him unique, doesn't it? He's holy, he's different, he's like no other. He's set apart. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Satan opposes God's plan. Sinful men resist and rebel to the fullest extent of God's plans. And yet it does not change God's purposes and plans in substance or timing or in any way whatsoever. So God's sovereignty always accomplishes his plans and purposes. Secondly, he governs and rules over all. In God's sovereignty, he governs and rules over all. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There is no authority greater than God's authority. If you've had a job before, you know you have managers or layers of managers and levels of authority, right? And you might come in and you make a decision that you're supposed to make, but someone higher up makes a different decision and kind of overrides that, right? And they have the authority to do that. Well, guess what? There is no higher authority than God. No one can step in and say, oh, God, I'm going to change this plan. Nobody can. He seeks counsel from no one, and he is under no one's authority. It is God who makes all these plans and fulfills them. He is completely independent. No one advises him. No one directs him. In God's sovereignty, number three, he sustains all things. You know, when God created the universe, he didn't just kind of set out, you know, earth on a, like a top and spin it out there and let it just kind of wind as a, uh, you know, like a, like, a, like a watch and just watch it tick away and he's uninvolved. No, no, not at all. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything God's involved in from the unique snowflakes that come down that are uniquely fashioned by God to the, to the major events that occur, whether it's a, a tornado or um, a natural disaster. They're all there by the hand of God. He upholds them all, and he's involved in them all. Number four, in God's sovereignty, he rules over all nations and governments. You know, we see the, the conflict in Ukraine right now, right, with Russia coming in, and it just seems like, you know, Russia has all the cards, right? And they're fulfilling what they want to do. And Ukraine wants to fulfill what they want to do. And, and, and by just observation, it seems like those guys are all in control as to what's going to happen. But God's word says something different. First Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. So what do we do? We, we pray to a sovereign God on behalf of our missionaries in Ukraine, right? We pray for them while they're under Russian attack. We pray for them to be bold and courageous with the gospel in the midst of harrowing fear and anxiety, right? That's understandable, Lots of uncertainty, but why can our believers that know our Lord and know his word, why can they be confident? Because of God's sovereignty. There's no leader. There's no army. There's no soldier. There's no tank that will not move to the right or to the left unless God allows it, unless he first decrees it. And that gives believers like ourselves great confidence, even though the appearances seem to be out of control. And, and, and it seems like, you know, God is not having a hand in it. And yet scriptures tell us a far different story. 
He's decreed and he plans, and nothing will happen outside his purposes. In God's sovereignty, number five, man's plans can never alter his ordained plan. Never. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know, all of us, we make our plans, we strategize, we organize, and we need to in this life, but ultimately, it's only the plans of God that come to pass. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In God's sovereignty, number six, he ordains and plans in every detail of our lives. Every detail. You, you guys have read Psalm 139 before. What a, what a comforting psalm. When David says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, Psalm 139, 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David's life was fully planned, detailed, and recorded long before his life had ever begun. And yes, God has a detailed plan for your life as well. And from the day you're born to the family you're raised in to the color of your next car, your grades this semester, your career, your church, who you're going to marry, the number of children you're going to have, God knows those things. He's ordained those things. Isn't it liberating and freeing when a believer understands that it is God who is the grand planner of my life and not me? You know, we often rest for control, and we're vying for it, and we're trying to find ways to make things work, and we strive and strive and strive, and yes, there's effort, and there's things we must do. But oh, what comfort there is when we just sit back and say, oh, Lord, you have this all planned already. You're sovereign. And success and failure is not fully riding on my decision-making, but on your sovereign plan and will. Great, great comfort in that. Number seven, in God's sovereignty, he predestines every child of God to salvation, right? He predestines them. Ephesians 1.11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Before time began, God chose those whom would be saved, predestined them, predetermined by God. It must be so. A sinner, dead in sin, a rebel against the truth, has no wherewithal, has no ability, is completely incapable and blind to truth and unable to see their great need and to understand truth and to apprehend that on their own. God must first work. He is sovereign in salvation. And yet we must choose, don't we? The, the scriptures are clear. Without a choice to follow Christ, you will be condemned. Hmm. That's an interesting uh, situation. God has chosen me and predestined me for salvation, and I must choose and perhaps you start, as we're talking along here, you're starting to feel a little bit of the tension, right? God's planned all these things. He has a blueprint. His sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. Are there any decisions left for me? Are, are my, do, do my decisions, are, are they have any relevance or weight whatsoever? There's a little bit of tension there with that. And as we go along here, we're going to say yes. Both are true. God has a sovereign plan, and you have choices to make, and you're responsible for them. They both exist and work together, okay? So we must choose. We must decide. We must believe in these big decisions like choosing God. And yet, those who will believe are the ones that God has already chosen, all right? So let's end here with this list of in God's sovereignty with people make real choices while doing exactly as God has already decreed, okay? Um, look at this passage here, which is 
just a great passage. Many of them we could look at here, so many. But in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, For truly in the city there, was, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What you're going to see in this passage here, if you haven't seen it already, is God has a sovereign will, what he's predestined, and the choices that men make that they're held accountable to. The will of God was that Jesus would die at the hands of sinful men. This was the decreed and unstoppable will of God, his decreed will. But notice here, you remember the story, Herod and Pontius Pilate. These men sinned in fulfilling God's will. In other words, some of the things God decrees, he actually hates. In the crucifixion, the greatest act of evil to ever occur, God disapproved, yet ordained it to happen. God is never, God never himself commits evil, and evil never occurs outside God's control. You know, this, 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 these are perplexing questions, aren't they? How can there be evil in the world when a good and holy God is sovereign? But listen to this. God does control evil. If we say God does evil, if he's the originator of the evil, if he's the one that commits the evil, then he is not the righteous God he, he declares himself to be, and he's not the God of the Scriptures. But if we say God doesn't, does not use evil to fulfill his purposes, then there's an evil that's not under God's control. And that leaves us in a real predicament, doesn't it? And the promises of God cannot be true. He will overcome evil. And there is no power outside his will that has a higher authority than his. Ultimately, Herod and Pontius Pilate actually did as they had desired and decided. They acted on their choices. And yet these human decisions were what God had already planned, exactly as he had predestined. Okay? So you're feeling the tension with me, right? Let's, con let's continue to unfold these truths, okay, to get more clarity and understanding. And what we need to uh, jump to is God's revealed will. God has a moral will. We've been talking about his decreed will, unalterable, planned by God. We cannot know it until it unfolds, right? But here's the, the, the God's revealed will, God's moral will. This is the will of God defined in the scriptures, okay? So you can, you can uh, separate God's revealed will in, in, in this way. There's specific commands, there's general commands, right? We go all through the scriptures and there's commands, do this, don't do that. And we know how to please God and follow him by the clarity of the word that we enjoy from week to week, day to day, moment by moment, on how to live within God's framework, how to live within God's will. And there's general commands, right? How to be faithful, how to be honorable. The commands to be holy, right? Without necessarily specifics, but a general direction of the way God expects us to live. This is God's moral and revealed will. They're biblical commands from God. They're clearly communicated to us in Scripture. These are revealed to us. They aren't unknowns. We know them. We study them. And we seek to follow them, okay? But God's moral will is not always followed. His decreed will must always happen, but yet in his moral will... We have the choice to obey or the choice to disobey. And whether we obey or disobey, God uses those decisions we make, those free choices we make, to accomplish his foreordained uh, plans. All right? He is still sovereign, and yet in his moral will, we have the choices and decisions to make, whether those are good ones or bad ones. And of course, as believers, we're called to make good, conscientious decisions that bring him honor and glory and for our good. So God's will of command, God's will of desire, God's revealed will, okay, 
It's there in the scriptures. It's not hidden like his, like his decreed will. And this, this will of desire is something God intends, and he commands it, and we have a choice to obey or disobey. And really, the vast majority of our decisions are detailed in God's moral will. Now, you know, we, you look at God's decreed will, and you look at his moral will. First, you look at his decreed will, and our, our jaws drop, right? We're just in awe. How can God plan all this and decree all this and ensure fulfillment of everything he's planned and purposed to the, down to the finest detail? And yet, at the same time, I, I see that I'm to be a decision maker, and my decisions are important. And in some way, God uses my dis- decisions along with his will to accomplish his purposes, that my decisions aren't meaningless. They, they aren't something without uh, importance, okay? We must avoid a misinterpretation of God's sovereignty. Otherwise, we just become a fatalist, right? It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I pray. It doesn't matter if I share the gospel. It doesn't matter if I'm holy or not. And a misinterpretation of God's sovereignty will send you in a direction that's really out of God's will. I've heard it said many times, uh, you know, I don't pray about this because someone else might be praying in a different way. And if we're praying in different ways, then God's forced with this problem, right? <laughs> how's he going to you know, answer those prayers, right? Or be faithful, you know? I don't want to confuse God. I don't certainly want to disappoint the other person that's praying differently. And that's a misinterpretation of God's sovereignty. What's his revealed will say? Pray. Pray. Pray for God's will. Pray for your desires. Make your supplications and your requests known. Right? And allow God with those details, to take those details, to fulfill the purposes that he has in mind. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. What we do, we rest in his providence. So in all this, what we're looking at here is there's, uh, in God's sovereignty, there's human responsibility, okay? Um, We're going to skip a few. Yeah, let's look at this phrase right here. God's sovereignty is always consistent with man's responsibility. It always is. They go hand in hand together. God's sovereignty is always consistent with man's responsibility. Look at this passage here. Acts chapter 2. And I want you to look. We're going to highlight some words here. In blue will be God's sovereignty. And in the orange there will be human responsibility. Acts 2. Look at this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, now here's God's sovereign will, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We jump over to man's responsibility. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look as it continues here. In, 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 in verses 36 through 38, we see there's consequences for our decisions. God has foreordained that Jesus would be uh, crucified for our sins, and that would be done through the hands of lawless men. And there's, there's accountability for our decisions. This Jesus whom you crucified, and they respond, well, yeah, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart, right? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Our decisions have significance. Our decisions have importance. Don't take the fatalistic attitude. It doesn't matter what I decide. It doesn't matter what I do. God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. No. The scriptures say both. God will do his plans, but we must decide. The choices are still laid before us. They go hand in hand. Consistent with God's sovereignty is man's responsibility. Okay? I will be held accountable for my decisions. And in my decision-making, 
God in his sovereign, unbelievable plan will use my decisions alongside his sovereign plan, the grand plan, to accomplish his purposes in our lives, okay? Your decisions matter. Um, I just want to, we're going to go ahead here just a little bit here. Look at this phrase here. God chooses to use my decisions in concert with his sovereign plan to accomplish his good and holy purposes in me for my good and for his glory. We'll be building more on this next week. But here's just a statement. This is the way God chooses to work. He uses my decisions in his sovereign plan, his grand plan, this unalterable plan, to accomplish his good and holy purposes in me and for my good and for his glory. Let's close with this passage right here that speaks to both these truths, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. He's sovereign. He has an unknowable plan. I cannot fully understand it, but I know it's there, and I respect it, and I worship him because of it. But they're secret. It's unknowable. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What? That we may make good and godly and proper decisions according to his moral revealed will. Follow his will. Go to scripture. Be, be, be informed by scripture. Your decisions to follow those things are absolutely critical and important. God calls you and commands you to make good, holy, conscientious decisions. The secret things are of the Lord. How that fits in with his plan? I don't understand it. And guess what? We never will. We're too finite. But with God and his plan and his purposes and his greatness and his power, he chooses to use my decisions. So what do we do? By faith, we follow and obey the revealed moral will of God and allows us, that allows a sovereign God, as he has already ordained, but we, we just present to God our obedience and our plans and our decisions and let him use those to accomplish his will that he will perform. All right? That's a start into biblical decision-making, godly decision-making. We'll build on that a lot more next week in why God can be trusted. Okay, we'll be looking at his love. We'll be looking at his goodness. We'll be looking at his power and his wisdom and his knowledge of all things and why God can be trusted. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys go. It's kind of getting a little bit late there if you're heading to the next service. So shoot on over there. If anyone wants to talk to me afterwards, we can always answer a few questions, all right?